Hello, hey, Rob man, Tate. Can you hear me? I hear you great, man. How are you? I'm good. I'm in my car driving home. No sweat. This won't be the first one I've done of these with somebody driving their car home. There you go. Hey. I'm actually in my daughter's car. She had to borrow my car to uh, move into her new her new uh, house for the for this coming school year. Is she living close to campus? Yeah, she's she's right off campus. Um, she's living with three other girls in a little house, um, starting her junior year. So, is this her first year living outside of the house? House, or uh, she's been doing no, that the whole uh, before? She, she's been on campus up until this point. Okay. So she was in the uh, she was in her dorm the freshman year, and then she was in her on her sorority hall last year. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. That's that's really great. I mean, yeah, because that's tough being at home and college is at home, you know, and there's that decision. Do I go off and live in the dorm? Do I go off and stay at the house? I mean, you know, that's kind of a hard place to be sometimes. It is. She's done well with it. I mean, she's we wanted her to be able to, you know, do college, but uh, that was kind of always the fear of moving to Auburn was I was kind of fearful that none of my kids would want to go to school. They'd all want to go off. <laughs> nobody would want to stay here but uh she's done it well i mean she's she's combined being with us you know when we need her to be or when she needs to be with uh being independent well uh i want to sort of give you a little bit of a game plan before we get started about what we're going to do um how close are you to the house i guess uh i'll be there in just a few minutes all right so well i'll give you prep while we're while we're getting to that because i don't want to burn all the good stuff while you're you know driving and you if you don't have to keep looking at me if you don't want to look at me i'm fine i, I you know <laughs> <laughs> so I, I want to dig a little bit into your sort of origin story um you know of how you got to where you are um you know born and raised in alabama and birmingham um how sports has influenced your life uh, because you've got, definitely got a different story from most optometrists i mean most of us didn't play four years in a division one college football program you know so that's that's definitely different um but the other thing is really kind of different for you is you got to go through the transition um from one leadership group to another leadership group so i really want to talk about that i think that's fascinating you know because not a lot of people go through a wholesale change of an organization that's that big mm -hmm. and has a complete leadership change um especially in the midst of turmoil i guess you'd say that causes that to happen so i think that's a, right. a neat lesson to talk about and um then i got a couple of special little nuggets we'll throw in here and there have some fun with that but <laughs> <laughs> right. so um, is this a what what is this uh how often do you do your podcasts i'm doing it kind of sporadically i don't know if you know chris wolf or that name yeah. rings a bell he's you know he's spoken oh, yeah. at seco a couple of times Chris started this podcast, I guess, about two and a half years ago, and maybe it was three years ago now. And I had always, you know, thought, well, I want to do a podcast one day. I just because I listen to tons of them. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, he came out with one. I well, shoot. Well, Chris has done one. You know, now I, I don't want to step on his toes. I mean, yeah. that was complete uh, scarcity mentality, not abundance mentality. But I said I don't want to step on his toes, and then. Um, my dear friend and idol, Mike Rothschild, a great American, ends up getting um, interviewed on Chris's podcast. So I just called him. I said, hey, Chris, uh, I really admire what you're doing. I think it's fantastic. Um, I, I got to say, you know, I was kind of jealous when you came up with this doing because I thought I was going to do it one day and then you did it. And he goes, well, you should do one anyway. And I said, yeah, I kind of thought he said, well, actually, what you should do is once you just like do something with mine. And, you know, that'll give me a break from time to time. And, you know, we can have some different voices on here. And it, I think you, you'll have a different reach than I do. And I said, well, okay, we'll try that. And we've been doing it now this way for about two years. And so I'll do maybe okay. a quarter of the ones for the whole year and he'll do all the rest. Welcome to the Vision of Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Ted McElroy. This podcast is dedicated to helping you find your wins, have a better quality of life, and become the best leader you can be. 
Hey, have you subscribed to this podcast yet? Don't miss an episode. They're worth every single thing you paid for them, which is nothing because they're free. I invite you to subscribe to the podcast by hitting the subscribe button. Give us a rating and a review on your specific podcast player. This helps us with our podcast rankings and makes it easier for people to find us. And as always, please support those who help support us. episode 102 of this podcast, Chris interviewed Justin Kwan, Michelle Andrews, and Richard Ruth. They pointed out that as a profession, we have done a great job of letting our patients know that myopia is not a big deal. If you can see 2020, there is no worry. It is the high myopes that are more danger. And as they said, that message is tragic. Any myopia has a higher risk of maculopathy, glaucoma, and earlier cataract development. In the MySight one-day clinical trials, only 4% of study participants who got ProClear one-days stayed stable in their myopia progression over the three-year period. That means you can confidently say, parent, by not going to a system geared to slow the myopia progression, there is a 96% chance your child's vision will get worse. This may take away some of the choice your child has in the future as to how they will correct their vision. Choice not fear of the disease associations with myopia is what best resonates with parents when it comes to myopia control for their children. And with Cooper Vision's MySight One Day, we now have an FDA-approved single-use contact lens to lessen the progression of myopia in our patients. Contact your Cooper Vision representative to find out more about MySight One Day contact lenses. Welcome to the Vision of Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Ted McElroy, and today I have a wonderful guest with me, Dr. Rob Pate of Birmingham, Alabama, originally now of Auburn, Alabama. Um, he was born and raised in Birmingham, Alabama, uh, was a four-year starter for the Auburn Tigers in the football program from 1997 to 2000. Uh, he was uh, on a number of all-conference teams, was a two-time academic All-American, not a, something a whole lot of football players can talk about, um, four-time SEC honor roll and the Pat Dye leadership role. But in optometry, he's also been really, really uh, involved as well. He was, how many years past are you now from uh, presidency from the, uh, from Alabama's Optometry Association? Um, I'm three years removed now. Okay. So you're passed out like me. Yeah, I have. <laughs> uh, he also was the 2013 Alabama Young Optometrist of the Year, 2014 American Optometric Association Young Optometrist of the Year, and the 2015 uh, Seco Young Optometrist of the South. Um, that's quite a quite a uh, decorated role you got there, Rob. And uh, thank you for being with us today. Well, I am glad to be here with you, Ted. You are uh, you are a great man, and uh, I'm excited to do this with you. It's been it's uh, I was telling you it's been a lot of fun doing these podcasts. I, I I'm amazed at how much I'm learning by doing this. I, I guess that's the thing I really enjoy about it is I'm I'm coming away from this learning a lot more from from our colleagues and friends of mine that are doing stuff from outside of optometry as well and that's been a lot of fun um but you know it's it's i kind of look at it like this is like ten thousand dollars worth of free consulting is what i basically end up getting (laughs) (laughs) there's a lot of great content out there you're right yeah that's right so rob i know i've talked about some of your awards and such but i would like for you to tell everybody kind of how you got to where you are today and um you know through your um involvement in sports how that shaped what you do uh how that sort of played a role in your leadership attitudes and things like that yeah I, you know well i'm uh, uh ted i've been playing sports my entire life and uh, started uh, playing as a as a five-year-old um basically you know the three big sports where we grew up were football basketball and baseball and I participated in all of them, and, and, and really, I've just always been surrounded by really good people, really good coaches, um, parents. You know, I, I had parents that were uh, um, always um, there for us and uh, provided the things that we needed. Um, by no means did I come up in a wealthy environment, 
Um, in fact, sometimes I, I look back at some of the pictures and um, see some of the people that uh, we, we ran with as, as kids. And, I, and it's uh, uh, you, you don't even realize kind of the, the culture that you're that you're being raised in. But a lot of love and a lot of people that uh, really molded me early on um, just to, to dig for, uh, you know, to, to get the most out of um, the, the potential that you had. And, um, so yeah, I mean, athletics, uh, it, it, it formed, uh, my, uh, the backbone of, of everything that I do. I mean, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be an optometry if it weren't for, uh, um, for my time at, at Auburn and, and athletics, because, you know, that was, uh, how I ended up shadowing our team doctor, um, was uh, uh, at my time at Auburn, but uh, but but even with that, you know, I um, I've just had so many so many people that uh, um, whether it be at Auburn, whether it be in high school, whether it be even in, in little league athletics, um, that uh, just the right people at the right time stepped into my life, and and maybe it was a uh, a mentor, maybe it was a, um, somebody that, that prodded me more than I really wanted to be prodded at that time, but, uh, but knew, um, that, that I had the potential to maybe go a little bit further than the guy next to me. Um, maybe it was somebody that, uh, was a little bit more patient with me than, uh, at a, at a moment when I needed it, but whatever it was, I've just been blessed um, to be around really good people. And, and that's kind of, um, been the case in my career as well. I mean, I, I entered a practice with, uh, Dr. Lynn Hammonds and, uh, Kathy Amos and, you know, so many people know them just, just when I say their names, but, uh, you know, the way that they treated me like, um, a, a mother, you know, they showed me, um, the ropes, uh, the importance of, uh, um, you know, being active and involved, uh, how to take care of people. I mean, just what it meant to them, all those sorts of things. It's just, uh, um, I've been really blessed in, in that realm as well. So, um, athletics though. Yeah, you're, you're right. I mean, it's, uh, it's different, it, you know, athletics, there's not many people with a, with a, like that have played major college football that go on to be optometrists. Um, but, um, the, the preparation for, the things that, uh, that you encounter on a daily basis, whether it be the, the difficulties with staff, whether it be the difficulties with uh, the patient that's sitting across from you. I mean, when you, when you participate in sports at that level, um, you know, you, you, you start learning how to deal with adversity and how to overcome things that, uh, that are extremely difficult. And you see that on a daily basis in the clinic. So you, when you're when you're looking at the leaders that may have shaped you throughout your your life, who are the one or two people who really stand out as that was really a, a pinnacle point for me uh, by being around that particular leader? I, I, the first person that stands out is my my little league football coach, and I know people probably shrug their shoulders at that and are like, "Are you serious?" I mean, is that how could that be that impactful for you? But um, you know, I think that his name is Tim Cole. And to this day, um, you know, if, if he ever were to walk in my door, I mean, we don't live anywhere. He lives in Tennessee. Um, he's been really successful in, uh, uh, in the uh, um, cable business. Um, if he were to walk in my door, my heart would skip a beat, you know, for, for the respect that I have for him because of, what he's instilled in me, um, what he, not that he forced me to do things, but, uh, he, he knew that there was a, a, um, a, a capability in, in me that, uh, that maybe I never saw in myself. And so, um, he drew out of me, um, a lot of success and, um, uh, and, and made me dig deeper than I thought I, I ever could. And, um, you know, I was with him for, for five, six years as a kid that, you know, was at very, you know, just transformative type of uh, time in your life. And so, um, you know, if, if, if I hadn't have had him come along um, at, and, and, in those, you know, in those years, I don't know that I would have ever been someone that uh, really pushed myself to the, to the extent that, uh, that, that he kind of teased out in me. So 
I think he's probably the first one. Um, the, the second one would uh, would be, uh, gosh, you know, there's so many, Ted. I mean, my parents were, were extremely inf- influential. My, my high school coaches were extremely influential. Uh, my defensive coordinator at Auburn uh, stands out um, just because of, he was a master at what it was he did at his craft. Uh, his name is, is coach Bill Oliver. Um, coach Oliver um, was the defensive mastermind at Alabama for, for several years. Um, he implemented the defensive scheme where they put all 11 defenders up on the line of scrimmage against uh, Miami and Gino Toretta in the 1992 national championship game. Um, you know, five years later when I was playing for him in the uh, SEC championship game against Peyton Manning, we, we instituted the very same defense and, uh, uh, and really confused Manning for uh, for for a half uh, until he figured us out in the second half. But uh, um, but to be around somebody that was regarded as the best in their in the, in their field, um, that had the respect of everybody, um, you know, whether you're talking offensive coaches, defensive coaches at every level of football, everybody knew that Bill Oliver was the best defensive mind that there was, and he was my coach, and he was building into me, and he believed in me. And uh, to be around that um, for two seasons, uh, because after after my sophomore year, that coaching staff was let go because we didn't produce um, enough wins um, in 1998. But, uh, you know, I got to be around the best and, uh, and and that only makes you better. And I saw how um, the best operates. You know, I saw what makes him tick. I saw the level of, uh, of just the the detail that he put into the, the smallest thing and uh, have never been around anybody else that was as knowledgeable as he was in football. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and that was influential to me and, and has carried over into other realms as well. You know, one of the things that you went through probably early on is something also we aren't, most of us aren't experienced with is the recruiting that must have taken place. Um, throughout your high school career, uh, I would presume that you had more than one college taking a look at you as you were going yeah. through. Yeah, I did. You know, I decided though pretty early on that uh, that I was going to. I wanted to stay close to home um, just because I wanted my parents to be able to watch watch me play. And uh, but but also, I mean, I, I grew up in Birmingham, so I grew up in the middle of the Iron Bowl. Um, you know, I, I was very well aware of, of Alabama's history, very well aware of Auburn's resurgence um, under Pat Dye and uh, kind of the, uh, um, the, the feud and, the, and just the rivalry of those two programs and, and what that meant, not just in our state, but what that meant in, in all of college football. And so I, before it ever even started with recruiting, I kind of already knew if, if I had an opportunity to stay in state and play at one of those two schools, that, uh, that that's what I would do. And uh, I, it was just a better fit for me at Auburn. So, you know, yeah, I still heard from lots of schools. And because I, I you know, I made, I made good grades, then I heard from a lot of schools that, uh, um, you know, Dukes and Stanfords and Vanderbilts and, and Northwesterns and, and schools like that, that, that had to recruit guys like me. I mean, and, and, and I don't know how those schools make it. You know, I really don't because uh, the – um, the rigor, um, just even in recruiting, I, I can remember Stanford. Uh, Coach Tyrone Willingham was at Stanford when I was uh, in high school, and he came and spent the day at my school, and he came and watched me practice basketball, and he looked over my transcripts, talked to coaches, probably talked to my pastor. I mean, you know, everybody. I mean, he, he left no stone unturned. Um, looked at my ACT scores, you know, and he gave me a packet, Ted, that was like, I mean, it was like a, a semester of optics and, and optometry school. I mean, it was like, I need you to do all this work. Um, I need you to get both senators to send letters of recommendations. We need you to take your ACT score again and bump that up. I mean, every other school was like, we need you on our signing class because we need to elevate our SAT scores. And at Stanford, they were like, we need you to, you know, get this up like several points, you know. And so um, I just couldn't believe the, the difficulty that it was to uh, um, even for a, or a, for a football recruit where they're really basically just doing everything for you to try to get you into, into school and, and help them compete on a national level on the football field, um, what it was like trying to get into a, to a place like that. So, um, you know, I wish I could tell you that I was super interested a- academically and that I was, you know, I went into it 
with the forethought that uh, I knew what I was going to do um, as I was going into school at Auburn. But really, I just wanted to play major college football. And uh, I knew that uh, both Auburn and Alabama and the SEC in general was where the best uh, people played. And so when I had the opportunity to, to go to Auburn, I jumped on it. So you, you said that you maybe you didn't – I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth. Maybe you didn't apply yourself quite as hard in high school. But how did you make that change in college? Because, I mean, I presumed you kind of knew the direction you were gonna, sort of going to go. You had to start getting into your science classes, and they're not just pushover classes. Um, and, right. and on top of that, you end up making you know, uh, four years honor roll with SEC and two years academic All-American. That's nothing to sneeze at. Well, I mean, I, I was I always had pushed myself. It wasn't that I wasn't doing the, the necessary work and, and, and trying my hardest in, uh, in, the, in the academic realm. I mean, and that's part, like I said, I, that goes back to the people in my life that, uh, that almost demanded it, you know, and, uh, and so I'm grateful for that. And so it put me in a position to where I had opportunities that maybe other people didn't. But when that time came, I wasn't interested in, you know, going one and 11 and getting my head kicked in every Saturday um, at Vanderbilt um, for the education. I, I wanted to go and be, you know, I wanted to play for an SEC title. You know, I wanted no offense, to, Commodore, uh, Commodore fans. No offense, Commodore fans. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the, thing, the reason I say that is because my, my, the, the, my host on my, my official visit to uh, Vanderbilt told me that very thing. You know, it was like, hey, look, you can come to Vanderbilt and you can get the best education in the South, but you're going to get your head kicked in on Saturday. You know, but uh, and so they they were very aware of kind of what the trade off was. And uh, and, and so was I. Um, but I was kind of of the opinion, um, kind of like I am with uh, with public school. You know, I'm a I'm an advocate for public schools because I think that you can get you can get as much out of an education as you're willing to put into. it. And uh, uh, whether that's a a school with minimal resources or that's a school with every advantage that uh, you can possibly get. And, uh, um, and so, you know, I kind of had that same uh, opinion of the schools at Auburn and Alabama, even though Auburn is a much better school than Alabama. I mean, that's just a given. I mean, we all, we all know that. I think that's, uh, that's well known uh, throughout uh, academic circles, but uh, the, uh, and I'm just kidding, but uh you know, I, my decision was based solely on what my football experience was going to be like. I felt like I could make the most academically out of wherever I went. And, uh, you know, all of these schools, you can you can proceed down a career path of your choosing if you if you apply yourself. And um, uh, and so that was kind of my thought process going into it. And, and, and I went into it, Ted, thinking I wanted to do physical therapy. Uh, I did not go into it thinking that uh, I wanted to do optometry, even though I had uh, benefited greatly from optometry in my life um, as a very nearsighted myope um, up in the minus seven, seven and a half range. Um, I had a spare set of contact lenses on the sidelines for every game I played in, started wearing contact lenses as a seventh grader, got my first pair of glasses as a second grader. Um, so, uh, you know, not not very good myopia management uh, on behalf of uh, my my local optometrist there in Center Point, Alabama. But uh, uh, but still changed my life and, and made me see the world clearly and uh, left an impression with me that uh, that became something that uh, I vividly remembered when uh, when physical therapy became a route that I no longer wish to pursue. So, um, um yeah, I, I was I was lucky enough to be able to spend some time with uh, we had a team uh, optometrist, uh, basically the the local optometrist in Auburn that had the contract to do all of eye care for all the athletes at the university, which now we actually do that um, now that I'm here in Auburn. So I get to see all the athletes that come through now, which is just neat because it's come full circle. But uh, I got to spend time with that doctor and uh, um, and, and see what his day was like and, uh, and just really enjoyed it. And, uh, it's, it's been, I haven't looked back since. How has, I mean, you know, we all talk about the experiences that we have and how it shapes our career. Um, you know, there's been this huge resurgence all of a sudden in, in caring about myopia in the last couple of years. How, how has 
your experience with myopia change what you are doing now? I mean, are you guys actively pursuing myopia control in your practice? <laughs> you know, I, not like we should. I mean, not to the extent that um, I think that we're making a dent in, uh, you know, the, the long-term implications or where uh, people are going to end up. I mean, we do do some, some, uh, some of the uh, multifocal contacts, but, you know, we really leave it up to the, uh, the almost to the parents that inquire about it, um, which I'm, you know, should be better at. But, you know, part of me also looks at the side that uh, so many of our kids um, that, uh, that come in, a lot of them are athletes. And I, I pause to give those kids um, less crisp vision um, in their athletic endeavors um, so that instead of being a minus seven later in life, they're a minus five, you know, right. I mean, it's, it's, uh, um, it's kind of a double-edged sword for me. It's kind of the old argument about ortho K. I, it's, it's hard for me to want to fit somebody in ortho K when you're, you're still going to have to insert, remove a contact. You're, you're, mm -hmm. you're still going to have to clean contact lenses. You're, you're going to sleep in them now, which is not as healthy as if we just took them out at night. Um, and, um, you know, they're really going to be pretty expensive. Um, plus as the day progresses, your vision's going to get worse. Why not just put a contact lens in and just see clearly all day, you know, that kind yeah. of thing. And so, um, and I know that there's other thoughts behind that and I don't begrudge people for that and understand why people do what they do. But, um, um, that's, that's kind of where we have, have landed on, on my myopia progression, even though I, uh, um, I think that that's going to be a, a big deal as we go forward. And, and uh, you know, for the non-athletes, I'm a little more um, I'm ready to pull the trigger and, and not, not give it as much um, second thought. But for the athletes, I'm, I'm, always, I'm always more keen on, I want you to see as sharp as you possibly can for your distance activities, because I know how impactful that was for me. Well, I mean, you're looking at it from a quality of life standpoint, too, um, you know, at their moment that's really what's truly important to them, um, you know, and you're trying to give them what they need. And that's, that's, I think where you're going with that. Um, you, you, you go through, you get recruited to go to Auburn. You uh, get there under Terry Bowden's program. Uh, Terry, for those of you that don't know, is the son of Bobby Bowden, um, which surprisingly actually kind of has a connection to me. I grew up in a little town called Douglas, Georgia, which is about 45 minutes from here. Uh, Bobby was the very first football coach that South Georgia College had. They had oh. such a great program at uh, South Georgia that they um, had won, I think it was a junior college level of championships. They had won so many championships, they started not being able to get anybody to come play them. Um, so the program died because they were too, they were actually too good. Uh, never heard of anything like that in my life, but it really happened. And from there, he went on to the Mountaineers and then on to Florida State. Um, but you so you get there with Terry Bowden, you're you sign because that's the coach you go with. And then two years into the program, you find out he's leaving. How does that affect you as a as a player? How does that affect your team? Well, you know, it. And it. And me wasn't as about Coach Bowden, even though um, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of uh, of Bobby Bowden and think that he lived an incredible has lived an incredible life. And I saw what he just had uh, a terminal diagnosis with pancreatic cancer, and we just wish him the best. And um, you know, there's not there's not I've heard him say that he's he's at peace with dying, and there's not many people that when you hear them say that you truly believe yeah. them when they say it. Um, he's somebody that I would truly believe um, because he's been a man of God. And uh, I just think he's lived his life the right way. Um, not as, um, as when, when coach Bowden left, it really wasn't about coach Bowden for me. Um, it was about coach Oliver, um, the coach that I told you about that was so influential. That was our defensive coordinator. Um, that's the reason I went to Auburn was because of him was because he saw where I fit in the defense he was my position coach. He was my defensive coordinator. He's the man I spent the most time with. Um, I knew um, what a um, success he had been everywhere he'd ever been. And so when he was not retained, that was, that was, you know, a piece of me walked out with him. And, uh, and I never was really the same type of player 
uh, Ted. I mean, I, I, I was a freshman All-SEC defensive back in 1997. I was a second-team um, All-SEC defensive back as a sophomore. And, um, and then when they left, Coach Tommy Tuberville came in, and we changed from a 3-4 to a 4-3 defense, which means that the position that I played no longer existed within that defense. And so I had to learn not only a new um, position, I had to get acquainted with a new uh, position coach. Um, instead of me lining up 10 to 12 yards deep uh, on the snap of the ball, I'm now lined up on the line of scrimmage or just off the line of scrimmage at the snap of the ball. And my whole life, everything on defense had been happening in front of me, um, you know, of course, with my, with my contact lenses in so that I could, uh, so that I could actually see what, I, what was in front of me. But uh, um, now everything was happening behind me. And, and my, my greatest attribute was uh, just the ability to, um, um, to know kind of what the, what the offense was trying to do, diagnose it, and, uh, and get in position to make a play. And, and now I couldn't do that. My greatest asset, my eyes were taken from me. And um, so it's, it's tough for, um, for everybody. And, um, but, you know, we didn't have the same type of, of luxuries that, uh, that, the, that the guys have now at this level. These guys can transfer now at every, every turn, every time there's a little bit of adversity to have to contend with. You know, they can, they can pick up and, and, and see if the grass is greener somewhere else. We, we couldn't do that. And, uh, and I'm thankful for that. You know, it, it made us work through um, those difficulties. It made us uh, find solutions to things that we had issues with. It, it made us learn um, how to adapt and, uh, you know, to compete when things weren't going our way. And you can't, you can't teach that stuff. I mean, I mean, that stuff, that stuff is, we, we, we had to learn that the hard way. And, um, um, you know, they, I, I really, I really hate that those kids don't have to, don't have to contend with those, those things at this point. Um, uh, it's just, it's too easy for them to, uh, to walk away from things that are difficult to have to deal with. So do you feel that the new coaching staff, did, did they work more trying to get you guys feeling comfortable or do you feel like the onus was almost on the team to make the coaching staff feel comfortable? I don't think they, they cared much about our comfort. Uh, you know, I think that they were all about implementing um, their new philosophy. They were trying to make us physically tougher. Um, they were um, all about um, just changing the culture and the identity of, of what things were like under the previous regime. And in a lot of, a lot of ways, they were, they were right. We needed it. We had become soft. Uh, we were a team that uh, had lost eight games. And you know that uh, with how much college football means in this part of the world, um, that's just not acceptable. And, uh, I mean, we were, we were coming off of being one point shy of, of being the SEC champions the previous year. I and mean, we, we lost that game to Peyton Manning, 30 to 29. Um, and then a year later, those coaches are all um, fired. And, um uh, but yeah, um, we had gotten to a point where, um, you know, some, some, some things needed to change uh, from a toughness standpoint, both physically um, and mentally. And uh, Coach Tuberville really did a good job of, of instituting that, both in the weight room, um, making some demands of guys um, in the classroom. And, uh, and honestly, he brought in what is something something that has become very popular in not just football, but but all throughout college athletics now is he was the first person to bring in what he called a spiritual coordinator. So he brought in a former player that was a, an ordained minister that was a local pastor here in town named Chet Williams that had played linebacker for Coach Pat Dye. And he had an office um, in the athletic department. And he was basically just a mentor for guys. He was a, a, a spiritual um, father figure that a lot of guys on my team didn't have. And um, he went over goals with us. He went over, uh, um, you know, just anything that was bothering guys or any questions guys had. And, and that's now become a, um, a role that almost every major college football team has, but may, almost every basketball team has. Almost every women's program has. Um, yeah, yeah. He really set a high bar with that and became something that people um, implemented 
all throughout the country. And it had a huge impact on us as players. And, uh, you know, you, you spend so much time together um, as an athlete at, uh, um, at a place like Auburn, but you know so little about those guys, um, really. I mean, you know, you, you, you're, you're on the field with them and you fight with them and, you know, you're in practices with them, but you don't really ever get to see maybe their home life or what their, you know, the, the socioeconomic situation that they came from or, or, or you know, even, you know, what they're dealing with in the classroom, those sorts of things. And so for those guys to have somebody to be able to turn to, and, and, and I say those guys, myself included, um, like Chet, um, a guy that we could, you know, have uh, complete trust in, that he wasn't some kind of conduit to the coaching staff, that if we had serious issues that we needed to reach out with and, and touch, talk to somebody, that he wasn't going to immediately um, you know, go to our, our coaching staff and uh, kind of rat us out um, or, or call our parents even if, uh, if, if it were something that uh, we wanted it to remain confidential. Um, you know, you needed that trusted source um, when you're 19, 18, 20 years old and uh, you're trying to make some tough decisions and, and you're trying to do it in an environment that uh, is, is, is ultra competitive and, uh, uh, and, and they provided that. So I have to give them a lot of credit for that. So how does, I mean, this should be an easy one for you to answer from here, considering you've kind of written a book on this literally uh, in the way of the athlete, but how do you translate all the things that you learn from sports and uh, into your regular life forward? I mean, how do, how do you translate that kind of thing into your day-to-day life now? I, you know, I, don't, I think most of it at this point is, it just became muscle memory almost. I mean, it, those, some of those, most of those things are just ingrained, Ted. I mean, it's, you, you do them so many times, they become habitual. Um, it's just a way of life. I mean, you, you learn discipline, you learn hard work, you learn uh, accountability. Um, you learn that uh, you're only as good as the guy next to you. Um, you know, those things all spill over into all of our offices. I mean, how many times have we said, you know, I can do the greatest eye exam in the world, but if uh, if my receptionist looks at somebody wrong on the way out or, you know, doesn't compliment somebody when they walk in, um, then they're going to look at our office and give us a bad mark. You know, you're only as good as 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 the as the least of those um, as as your as your weakest link. And so um, those things have just always kind of been part and parcel of, of everything that we've done. And, and that's why a guy like Tim Cole, that little league football coach, was so important to me early on. It's why I'm such an advocate for kids to play athletics at an early age, even if they're not good, just, just to be a part of a team sport, um, just so they can be around somebody that doesn't look like them. Again, that's why I'm a big proponent for, for public schools, um, just so you can be in an environment that's going to look like the world that you're going to have to go compete and participate in. You know, we, we, we have gotten to the point, you've heard the, the helicopter parents and the lawnmower parents that want to mow everything down so that they just create an easy path for their children. Um, my parents never gave me that. I'm thankful for it. And I uh, try not to do that for my kids um, because, you know, they're only going to benefit from, uh, from some of the adversity that they're going to face early on and learning how to deal with it. And of course, we want to be there for them. Of course, we want to give them everything that we can to make them successful. But part of that is loving them enough to let them fail, loving them enough to let them, um, you know, be in, in environments that, uh, that they have to figure out on their own in ways that, uh, that are going to come up later in life. And um, I think that's what athletics did for me in many ways. It, uh, it provided the core of everything that, um, that, that I am. It, 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 it gave me... So it kept me out of so many valleys in life um, um, just by just by doing the, the core principles that they demand of you. Now, the, the one thing that and I write about this in the book that that athletic did not give, it did not give any of me or, or anybody that, that I've ever played on teams with truly the ability to feel like you could you could fail and that'd be OK that you could be vulnerable, that you could show weakness. Um, you know, those were things that I think are missing in sports that you need a very mature, spiritually mature coach to be able to draw out or parents to be able to draw out because kids and adults, 
um, teenagers, you know, we all need to, to know that it's okay to not be okay, that it's okay um, to, to, to not be perfect. And in a lot of ways, some of that perfection that athletics taught has helped me get to where I'm at, but it's also created a false view that I can do all things on my own. And that's not true either. And so I think there's a, uh, I think there's a, there is a balance there somewhere that, uh, that, that sports has to, has to figure out. And, and, it, and it takes a, a very smart, um, full of wisdom and discernment um, coach or parent or, or even player to, to get there. Do you think that is still the case in sports today? Is it, is it worse? Is it better? How, how do you see that in today? I think sports? it's still the case. I, I mean, I, I just think that, you know, you can go to any sporting event and you can watch, um, and it doesn't have to be a sporting event. In fact, at vaca- on vacation last week, I was at the swimming pool and I saw a dad with son and, and the son was playing with a brother. And, you know, every time they kind of touched each other, one of them started whining and he hit me, he scratched me, he touched me, that kind of stuff, which I know is, is completely annoying. And I'm sure I've snapped at my kids many times. I have five kids. And uh, so I get it as the dad. Um, my kids are grown now, so I don't really have to contend with all that. But uh, the first thing the dad said was, son, you can't, you can't get all upset and, and cry every time somebody touch. You need to grow up. You got to be tough. You got to be a man. You know, that, that type of, of discussion. Well, that's the, the same very type of thing that you would hear in a, in a locker room from a coach, um, from any well-meaning um, dad or, or little league coach. You know, be tough. Be a man. You can do it. You know, pick up kind of your pick yourself up by the bootstraps and make it happen. And as much as I, I agree with that message that we all need to work hard, I do think we all need help, too. And, you know, I also think that we need to feel OK if we give it our best shot. And, and, and sometimes you just come up empty handed. Sometimes somebody just is a little bit better than you. And, and that's fine. That doesn't mean that you don't give it your best. Um, and that doesn't mean that uh, that you're not a man if you also cry sometimes. You know, you're not a man if you're vulnerable with your spouse or with your kids. And so I think that's kind of the missing ingredient. If, if we could if we could teach the, the positive aspects of athletics and the drive and the determination, but also overlay that, it's OK to show emotion. You know, it's OK to not be so prideful. It's OK to uh, uh, to to um, to. Um, to, to, to weep or to, to, to mourn or things like that. You know, those, those are kind of the things that I think that dad was trying to say you can't do that uh, I don't think is, is doing that young man service as he gets older in life. Have, have you, um, this is kind of a veer off a little bit, but it's still going to stay on topic. Uh, have you seen any of the episodes of Ted Lasso on uh, Apple Plus TV at all? I have not. Okay. Um, well, I'm just going to, it, if you get a chance, you should, it's, it's a great show. It's funny for one thing, but it's a premise on it is this uh, head coach for a, for the Wichita shockers uh, football program. And in out in Wichita, Kansas gets uh, asked to come coach a UK premier league football team, soccer, as we would call it here in the States. And he knows nothing about soccer, literally nothing about soccer. And the whole idea is behind the fact that the, the owner's wife or actually the soon to be owner's ex-wife is going to take it out on her husband because the only thing he really loves is the Greyhounds uh, of this team. And so she's hired this um, you know guy to come out. That's this cowboy kind of almost dude to come and coach the team and ruin the whole thing. So what he's really, what she's really wanting, but he talks, he's, he's a very vulnerable person uh, and he, starts talking about the vulnerability um, a lot with the players. And I think that's, I think you're right. But is it, is it more along the lines of we should be teaching these kids and young adults that it's okay to fail, but not be a failure? Um, Is that the message that we're trying to teach them? Um, I mean, what is, what's the final lesson there, I guess. I think that's part of it. Yeah. I mean, I think we all, want um we don't want to stop short of trying to go beyond what we think our capabilities are because we're afraid that we're going to let somebody down or that we're not going to be enough or we're not going to be able to perform to that level 
Um, so, you know, of course, we don't want to blunt accomplishment because we never step into the arena to begin with because we're afraid to fail. But but also, you know, it. I'm not I'm not big on, you know, like this, this there's a a um, thing going around in culture right now with just kind of this toxic masculinity with, uh, you know, you, you can't be, um, a man, you know, we, we see how men are kind of portrayed as goofy dads are always just kind of bumbling, you know, drunks on TV, you know, that kind of thing, um, that are aloof, that aren't part of their family, that aren't, you know, just, just solid men. And, um, you know, I, I think we, we, we miss some of that, um, by the way that culture portrays men and, um, you know, but, but also just kind of the way that we don't, we don't think that a man that, you know, is vulnerable, um, that is, um, um, for, for, I'll just, I'll just, I'll just say it like this. If you're a man or even a woman and you, you own your optometric practice, do you think that your staff would would um, go out of their way for you would um, love coming to work for you would um, do anything that they could to help your practice be a success their practice be a success if you are more vulnerable with them if you are more open with them um, or if you give them nothing if you give them no emotion you give them no validation. You give them no sense of who you are. Um, I think we all recognize the answer to that. Now, I'm not saying we all come in and we just we just wear our emotions on our sleeves and we we just cry every time that somebody speaks. Um, I'm just talking about um, being a real human being to somebody, you know, um, loving people like we would want to be loved. Um, those are the things that um, that I don't know that we've gotten all there all the way there in sports totally because of the things or all the way there in society. But um, but something we can all work on nonetheless. I definitely agree with you. I think vulnerability is kind of becoming the meta skill of the 21st century, along with self-awareness and, you know, knowing not only who you are, but whose you are. Um, mm. And that's that's also extremely important. Mm-hmm. You you went through uh, a, a vulnerable transition a few years ago with your practice. Um, you were on track to really creating something special uh, with some people you really cared about. And um, that kind of changed. And uh, this is one of those things that if you want to talk about, let's talk about it. If you don't, that's OK. I'll just block this part out completely. Um, but, you know, it was you kind of went into something to build something. And you came out with basically just what you started with. You didn't really lose any ground, but you didn't gain any ground either. And uh, that was just because of the way the practice was changing. Your practice went from a a large multi-owner process into private equity. And, um, you know, you've been very public about your thoughts on how that's affected our our profession. Um, We haven't had a lot of people to talk about what it felt like to go through that. Um, right. You know, so what was that like going through all that for you? Well, I mean, professionally, it was the toughest thing I've ever done. It's it's the toughest thing I've ever endured. And, um, you know, I, I'm at peace with it because because of where I'm at now and kind of seeing um, God's hand and just his provision and what all he has provided for us um, in the aftermath of that. I mean, I, I truly think that I'm in a better situation than I was prior. Um, but at the time, you know, there's um, there's fear, there's um, there's anger, um, there's um, just you, you don't really understand the premise that giving away ownership to private equity and um, people that you never meet, how that is good long term for your profession. Um, you know, how 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 are less optometrists owning their practice practices better for optometry or better for op- for our for our patients? Um, in the uh, in the long run, nobody will ever convince me that um, that it is in any way. Um, 
so, you know, having, I had just bought into our practice. Um, like I said, we were, we were the first company um, in Alabama, probably one of the first in the Southeast to get purchased by private equity. We got bought back in uh, uh, 2015 and, um, um, you know, I, I was grateful that I had, I had become an owner so that I was able to actually make some of the money back that I'd invested into the company. But it was so disheartening to see kind of the value that they put on young doctors compared to our, our older um, um, colleagues. Um, they really came in and, you know, for more or less, they were just buying off the older doctors to let them ride off into the sunset with a retirement that they never anticipated. Um, and they were going to cut the, the pay of the younger doctors and, and in a case like mine by nearly 50%. And uh, I just couldn't do it. I had a family of five. Um, you know, we had uh, anticipated kind of the, the income, the revenue stream that, that I had already had. And, and so, you know, we, I, I wasn't going to be able to make it. In fact, if, if I stayed with that company, even after I took their buyout, if I stayed for that company for three years, I would have been in the negative um, from that point on. We had old, older folks in our group that, you know, they would have had to work for 150 years before they would have been in the negative. I mean, that's the disparity that we're talking about. And so that was a disheartening part about it. Um, but, but then also just to kind of, uh, you know, to, to see, um, um, you know, just your, your colleagues kind of sell out the profession, you know, in, in my view, that's what it was. And look, and, and I've sat on panels with people that have sold their practices of private equity. And, and, and truthfully, having sat there and listened to them, I thought that, you know, that's probably the wise decision in their, in their situation. Um, in my situation, it was just very tough because we had so many young doctors that were already a part of this group. We were 18 offices. We were all independently owned and operated under one corporate umbrella. And, you know, it just uh, it just kind of went away um, in the uh, just like that. And uh, so I ended up having to abide by a 25 mile non-compete radius um, for four years that, um, you know, I work in a state where the non-competes really um, aren't enforceable. But um, at the advice of my attorney, um, he told me that um, that this company was going to make a um, an example out of me and that whatever my buyout was, it would end up in his bank account defending me in court, even though I would win the case, I would walk away with, uh, with little to no, um, money from the, from the transaction. So I decided to abide by the, by the non-compete and I drove two hours, um, every day, one way from Birmingham to Auburn, um, to start practicing in a, uh, in another, uh, independent office. And, uh, and I'm there to this day and uh, we've grown to a second office now here in town and uh, we have four doctors in the, in the office and, uh, and it's great. I mean, I'm, I'm grateful that that office was not ready to absorb me that quickly because I made that decision pretty, pretty quick and, and honestly had to get to Auburn before the private equity group did, um, or else they would have blocked me from my non-compete. So, uh, um, so that that had a lot to do with it, and uh, why why I decided to commute until my family could move down. But uh, um, it, it's been a blessing. Um, the, the practice that I'm in now, um, it's uh, um, you know they, they, a lot of great doctors, a lot of people that really love love on people in the community, treat people well, and uh, you know practice to the the full extent that we can. So um, we're in a we're in a great place in a great spot. So, uh, Rob, I, I really appreciate your time today, um, and this is a, a great thing. If there's one thing that you would want to leave our audience with, uh, if you had like you should, if you could pick a billboard, and that would be what you had to leave it with, um, that everybody had to drive past that for the rest of their life, what would it say? Oh my gosh! Um, well, you know, I, for, from a from an optometric standpoint. And from, um, you know, somebody that really gave everything that I had for the profession at the expense of my family and my marriage and my kids, um, I would tell people to 
prioritize correctly to um, know what should come first and to major in the things that matter. And, um, you know, for a long time. And, and I think that that was, again, um, some of the athletics in me with just trying to go, 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 be the best, be the best. You can do all things. Um, I, I don't really think you can have a, a, a balance. You know, we talk about balancing work life and home life. Um, I think that your life should be so much more in the direction of your family and your home life than it should be your work life. And um, it took me a while to, to, to understand that. Um, but my countenance, my soul, my spirit, um, my family, we are healthier because I have a healthier identity and um, outlook on on work and as important as our profession is, and I love it. And um, it's, it's, it's evolving and people are able to do so much more and it's been so good to our family and I fight for it. And I talk to legislators about it and I, you know, love serving with, with guys like you to, 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 you know, be on the forefront of education and just new technologies and things that just help people. Um, I want to be there for my family um, to a degree so much higher than I can even expound on uh, more than I want to help my next patient. And so, um, you know, I I think that would just be what I would want people to remember is to uh, um, is to is to make the right choices with your time and, you know, with um, your talents and your treasure, um, because we can't take any of this stuff with us when we go. Um, but, uh, you know, our kids are never going to remember any of the things that um, we ever bought for them, but they remember every single thing we ever did with them. Um, our spouses are the same way. And so um, I just challenge people in that um, not to not to belittle their practices or to, uh, to run from them or, or not be the best at, at, at what they are and, and dominate their community and, and uh, their region. I, I hope everybody does all of that but I want them to do it with the right heart and spirit and, uh, um, and do it with uh, their families, um, getting more of their time than their, uh, uh, than, than their office managers. I don't think I can say that any better, Rob. Thank you. I appreciate your time today and uh, look forward to seeing you in person again real soon. Same here, Ted. I appreciate the time, man. I do have one other thing and, and people who don't really know the area, I'll get you to explain it. But how many times have you jumped off chimney rock at Lake Martin in your lifetime? I have I've never done it once. Jumped off I've jumped rock. actually I've jumped off ch- chicken rock. I haven't jumped off chimney rock. I've only gone halfway up. Um, you know, it's funny because coach Bowden, Terry Bowden, um, who was my coach at Auburn, he actually jumped off chimney rock and uh, broke his ribs. Oh. Um, so I was, uh, I was well aware um, that, uh, that that can, can be a dangerous proposition. But, uh, you know, we, we actually bought a house at Lake Martin during COVID, um, which was uh, totally against kind of my natural way of thinking. Um, I would, you know, I'm the planner and, and I'll buy for things. I'll, 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 I'll spring for things when I can pay cash for it. And, um, you know, I just uh, having that time together as a family during COVID when, you know, we got shut down I'm here, Ted, for we didn't practice at all for a full month and a half. Um, I was I was seeing patients one day a week for about two hours for emergencies. And, uh, you know, so I had a ton of time at home with our family and we spent some time at the lake and loved it so much. And we got to talking at dinner one night and I made the comment that, you know, I think we'll buy a lake house when you guys all leave. And, and my second oldest daughter looked at me and she said, why would you wait until we leave? Like we could be making memories right now. And, and that hit me in a way that I just, you know, I just, they were right. And, uh, you know, what was I waiting on and, and why would I, why would I wait until I couldn't share it with my family? And, um, and so we did, we went and bought a lake house. And uh, so we, I actually live not too far from Chimney Rock uh, 
during the summer when we're able to spend a lot of time up there on the lake. But uh, my kids want to jump off of it. I haven't let them. I've never done it. Uh, but we do see plenty of people take take a stab at it. Yeah, it's uh, for basically Chimney Rock is a 60-foot drop into the water from the top. I've done the Chicken Rock, which is 20 feet, and I don't ever care to figure out what that other 40 <laughs> is like. Uh, that was enough for me. Um, I, I apparently I went in a little too straight. I went straight to the bottom with my feet and caught the rocks on the bottom. Not real oh. bad, but I, I was able to push my arms in kind of and do a, a sweep that didn't get me too hard on there, but it was, oh. uh, it was, it was an interesting expression of, uh, Oh my gosh, I can't believe that that happened just now, but it, yeah, that's a, it's a really wow. neat thing. And, and, uh, you know, a lot of the co-eds would go out there and paint the rock and, uh, all sorts of different stuff on it. It's really, it's really a neat uh, structure for the lake. 